The following podcast contains content of a highly graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. The material covered is based on first-hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, every effort has been made to show respect to the victims and their families. Support for this episode comes from the country's leading mapping technology and services provider, Esri Australia. To learn more about how Esri Tech is making a difference in crime analysis and public safety, head to Esri Australia, that's E-S-R-I australia.com.au slash crime. Case update. The disappearance of Suzanne Morphew. Locating the truth. Think about this. In the Morphew case, the daughters have lost their mother. Now, as the criminal proceedings continue, they risk the loss of their father to jail. I'm Tori Shepard, and this is Mapping Evil with Mike King. And it's a Mapping Evil bonus episode, so please do head to wherever you get your podcasts and check out the previous episodes, particularly episode five, where we first investigated the case of missing mother of two, Suzanne Morphew. From day one, I was troubled with Barry Morphew's video plea for his wife. Mapping Evil explores how geography plays a role in horrific crimes, from mass murders to predators to cults. And I am here with Mike King. He's a cold case investigator who spent more than four decades working with law enforcement to solve these crimes. But I was more troubled by the lack of outward searching for his wife, including his lack of participation when her brother Andy organized a five-day search. And in a world full of wannabe true crime detectives, Mike is the real deal. And I think this episode will showcase just how insightful he can be. Mike, welcome back. Well, it is so good to be working with you again, Tori. I'm really looking forward to this exploration of the Suzanne Morphew missing person case, which has turned into a murder trial. The case has gripped the entire world, and it's grabbed the attention of the true crime community with things that have been happening, and they're crazy at times. I mean, I don't know about you, but I am continually scratching my head over this one. It's always really extraordinary when we talk about a case and I'm thinking it's in the United States, but, you know, it's really interesting because Mike's involved. And next thing I know, we see it here and it's in our media and that, that happened quite a lot. And it certainly happened with this distressing case of Suzanne Morphew. Uh, so she was married to her high school sweetheart, Barry. Together they had daughters, Macy and Mallory. And seemingly just out of the blue, she vanished on Mother's Day in 2020. And there was this huge hunt, this huge, well, maybe we don't say manhunt anymore, but a person hunt was launched for her. And Mike, when we first looked at this case, you had this to say. Within a few days of her disappearance, a YouTuber happened to be in the area wandering around and came across Suzanne's husband and videotaped him talking about what he believed the theories were. And he gave four theories at that time, and each of them seemed to have some interesting aspects to it. And so the second theory that the husband presented to this YouTuber who videoed was that she crashed on her bicycle, must have become disoriented from the crash, and fell into the river, which was very close to where the bike was discovered, and then swept away in the river. But Tori, the thing that bothered me so much about that was again, that there was no physical evidence to support that her bike crashed. And so when you lack these artifacts, you have to start saying, no, that's another red flag for me in this particular incident. 
I mean, from the moment an unsuspecting YouTuber met Suzanne's husband on a dirt road near their Colorado home, Barry Morphew's behavior has been captivating to me. Uh, the, the conversation then seemed odd and almost rehearsed as he delivered his theories. And for me, I kept reflecting on probabilities. We learn so much more about her personal and private life later on in this case, but it just didn't seem probable that she would walk away from her life, her, her daughters, or her loving brothers, sister, and father. You know, I spoke with her father several times about this case and even did so just shortly before he died and joined many people in sorrow as he passed away without knowing what happened to his daughter, Suzanne. I feel like there are many decades that, in your case, mean your gut instinct is not just, you know, your your magical thoughts. It's actually insight bred from bred from all that experience. Anyway, a lot has happened since then. So stay tuned, everyone, because Mike and I are going to pick forensically through the new evidence that's emerged. But Mike, can I just ask? Have you changed your thoughts on this case while you've been tracking it ever since that day, Mother's Day, twenty twenty? Nope, I, I haven't changed my overall thoughts on this one, Tori. You know, from day one, I was troubled with Barry Morphew's 20-second video plea for his wife. But I was more troubled by the lack of outward searching for his wife, including his lack of participation when her brother Andy organized a five-day search. He, he was nowhere to be found. Why is that? Much of my focus has been on what's not being said or done instead of what is being done. I mean, I didn't see him out searching. I did see GoFundMe pages that were established and raised literally tens of thousands of dollars. But when Andy needed money for the search, it wasn't available. I saw outward expressions that didn't exist or coexist with the physical efforts that were being put out. It all just seemed ingenuine to me then, and it does today. I find myself pushing all those thoughts aside, though, and I focus on one thing that I've never wavered in. That's my belief that Suzanne Morphew wouldn't have walked away from everything she's known for 40 years. Let's just back up a little bit, just in case people haven't heard the original episode and haven't been kind of watching it as closely as we have. Can you talk us through what happened, you know, pretty much as soon as she was reporting missing? What did we know back then about what happened? We have learned so much in the past 18 months. I mean, we heard testimony that suggests that Barry and Suzanne were not as happy as some people made it seem. There were text messages, fights, friends who were confided in. But, you know, before we talk about all that, I want to just retrace that fateful Mother's Day morning for a moment. Think about this. It's Mother's Day 2020, and instead of spending time with his wife, Barry Morphew says he packed his truck at about 5 o'clock in the morning and drove two hours north to Denver, Colorado, where he checked into a motel preparing to do some work. By mid-morning, his daughters called him on their mobile phones to explain that they hadn't been able to reach their mother. They wanted to wish her Happy Mother's Day. They were on a church-sponsored outing, and, and they were in the vehicle returning back that day. You know, this was becoming really interesting to me that Barry and Suzanne 
were home alone that weekend leading up to Mother's Day. Barry told his daughters that he'd check with the neighbor, and he hung up and called the neighbor and asked her to go over and check on Suzanne. This became even more interesting to me when the neighbor called him back stating Suzanne wasn't at home. It was then that Barry told the neighbor to go see if her bike was in the garage, stating that she might be bike riding. (laughs) The neighbor confirmed the bike was missing and Barry instructed the neighbor to call police. Well, number one, why does he think about the bike? And number two, why does he have the neighbor call police? Why didn't he call police? He returns home hours later and he meets with police and it would be later revealed in court that the responding officers found his behavior to be really odd, almost inappropriate with someone who had just had his wife mysteriously disappear, especially after police found her bicycle in some trees at the bottom of a small hill near their home. So he threw out this idea of her bike. He seem to keep throwing out all these different theories. One of my favourite, and I think this is because I listened to you kind of fairly thoroughly debunk it, is the idea that she was dragged away by a mountain lion. Now, I think this appeals to me because I'm, I'm picturing where she is. She's in Colorado. It's the wilderness. You know, I'm like, maybe there are mountain lions, but Mike, it didn't really wash with you, right? Yeah. I mean, wasn't that interesting how he already had a number of theories in place almost immediately? He wondered about a mountain lion killing Suzanne. He said that she may have crashed on her bicycle and stumbled into the river nearby, being swept away and drowned. He also thought maybe she could have run away with someone. And he even tossed out the idea that the boogeyman abducted her. Yeah. You know, I was so frustrated by the mountain lion theory that I jumped on it immediately and I called my friends at the Mountain Lion Foundation to chat about lion behavior. I live in lion country, Tori, and I wanted experts who had studied this magnificent animal to weigh in. And holy cow, weigh in they did. We explored a large 50-plus mile range that that suggests that about one lion will live within a 50-mile range. It's really rare for them to come around people and more rare for them to attack human beings. Now, at at the risk of being a little graphic, I want to say that I found many areas where lions have killed their prey. These are not pristine sites when a mountain lion kills something. A mountain lion can't pick up a 120-pound woman and carry her off without leaving some kind of artifact on the ground. A a drag mark, blood droplets, torn clothing, something like this. And there was nothing to support the notion. And frankly, Tori, when a lion kills its prey, the area looks like somebody just walked into an airplane propeller. That was very graphic. I I apologize. I don't know any other way to be less graphic in my description than that. All of that was just a bunch of malarkey in my opinion. So there's something a little bit off about Barry saying maybe it was the mountain lions. Is that a common thing for somebody to, you know, let's say an innocent man grieving, is is it a common thing that they would throw out so many different theories about what might have happened so early? Yeah, I find myself thinking, how would I respond knowing there's some danger in placing my own value system in a victim or suspect's shoes? I mean, when I do, 
I have to go back and reflect on the hundreds of people that I've interviewed in my life. And I find that some behaviors just don't fit the scenario. In, in many of these cases, family members, spouses, and survivors might say things like, I could have done more, or I should have done this or that. Then you have those individuals who will just deflect everything away from them and toward others. That's always a little suspicious to me. Okay. So Suzanne has disappeared. We have no idea what's happened. And this is when this big search begins. And Mike, I mentioned before about all these internet sleuths who, you know, they watch a bit of drone footage, they pull up YouTube, they think they can solve missing persons cases. And, you know, sometimes that avalanche of information maybe can throw up something. But in real life, there's a very, like, there's a massive logistical effort that's very organized. Tell us about how it's done properly. Well, today we have a community of internet sleuths who are actively looking for answers when these cases happen. Some of these people go too far, in my opinion, and they insert themselves into the investigation. I mean, we've seen what to me are horror stories of them showing up at crime scenes, pounding on victims or alleged perpetrators' doors. Now, while they might be good-meaning, many are more concerned about getting views, likes, and clicks. The internet sleuth community can actually hurt criminal case investigations, even though they might think they're actually helping. Now, what the internet sleuth brings to the table is absolutely important and beneficial, though. Uh, Social media is a great way to share information about missing person cases. It raises awareness, but these things need to be done with a measure of caution and responsibility. I, I call this valuable information and process that people can provide public CSI, or I use the term crowdsourced intelligence. Law enforcement needs to hear from people if they've seen or heard something that's related to the crime. Now, when people step over the line, though, things like banging on doors or harassing people who were involved in a case, it really becomes problematic. Now, in the Morphew case, we saw this groundswell of people who wanted to go out and help search for Suzanne. But then, Suzanne's brother Andy reached out to me and asked for help. We worked with Andy and his family and and law enforcement in identifying areas to search. Then we used high-tech GIS tracking software to monitor the search. It was amazing and in the end we provided tracking and analysis for nearly 700 citizen volunteers and all of that information was immediately made available to law enforcement. So by doing things in a structured way, these citizen detectives can become a helpful resource to government rather than a whole bunch of folks who don't know anything about preserving evidence, folks that are just out there glumping along in the woods, destroying evidence. So there's all this unstructured stuff that happens, but you've imposed a structure on that, which makes it so much more useful. And look, in May, listeners, if you hadn't heard, Barry was arrested and he was charged with the first-degree murder of Suzanne. But, Mike, despite all these efforts, the body has never been found. How important is that to the ongoing trial? It is so troubling for many people when a body can't be located in a murder case. I mean, heck, it's troubling for cops. 
You know, in the last hundred years in the United States, more than 500 criminal cases have ended up in convictions where the body was never found. So proceeding without a body isn't new territory. Successfully prosecuted criminal cases really get centered on multiple forms of evidence, and it could be without the body. Things like physical and forensic evidence, you know, the things like body fluids, DNA, fingerprints. Then there are eyewitness accounts, and in the Morphew case, there are actually eyewitness accounts of behaviors, not necessarily of murder. Now, criminal cases sometimes have confessions or admissions. And while we have circumstantial evidence, you know, this thing that says A plus B equals C. In fact, let me give you a better scenario. White milk mixed with chocolate powder will result in chocolate milk. You know, it's the thing that just says if you put these pieces together, it's going to just make sense. And we've had a lot of chocolate milk turn up. I remember when we first spoke about it, you know, people were talking about their happy marriage. Suzanne was talking about looking forward to doing various things. It seemed like a pretty happy household. But let's talk about Barry. So he wasn't just um, saving his love for Suzanne, was he? There were so many allegations that rolled out early on, especially through social media. I mean, it fueled a firestorm that focused particularly on whether or not Suzanne's husband was having an affair. There were things that suggested Barry was searching troubling websites, and there were allegations that he was seeing women on the side, all while he reportedly was looking for his wife. At the same time, information was surfacing that suggested there were other problems in the marriage. These text messages, private conversations with friends, all shed light on this less than ideal relationship the two people had. Now, these revelations all pointed to something we often talk about in these kinds of cases, the portions of a person's life. For instance, we all have this public persona that we promote in front of other people. This is kind of where we put our best foot forward, attempting to be charming and engaging. It might actually be part of our true personality, or it could be part of a chameleon lifestyle. Now from there, we examine the private side of our personality. That's the the things that we do in select situations, perhaps only in front of those people whom we have a great deal of trust in. These are the places where we share some of our deeper thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And then we have the secret persona, the side that we're now seeing revealed in the Morphew case affairs, internet searches. You know, the frightening part about our secret persona is that sometimes it's only seen by the person who's involved in a violent confrontation. Right, so it wasn't all happy families maybe after all, but Barry maybe wasn't the only one involved in betrayal? Holy cow, Tori. I mean, the revelation by the prosecution during the prelim hearing that Suzanne was having an affair rocked the global community. This is a community previously that had rallied around the missing woman. And now, all of a sudden, there's this flip side to the frustration and anger that many people held against Barry, adding to confusion and further questioning. 
But with all of this drama, we have to remember something as distasteful as fidelity in a marriage just plain isn't justification for murder. Mm. And look, we should say this is all stuff that's being come out of the trial over there in the United States because then it maybe flips a little bit because the recent reports uh, accuse Barry of hunting and controlling Suzanne because he was worried that she was maybe going to leave him. And I wanted to ask you, you know, I think we talk a lot now about coercion and control in relationships. How much of a red flag is that in a relationship? Yeah, that was another bombshell and prosecution hot potato. It was all new information as part of the arrest affidavit, which was finally released. The text messages, the private conversations, the internet searches, and then the prosecution's allegation that mobile phone records showed Barry chasing Suzanne all around the house were popping up huge red flags left and right. Red flags that continued to pop up and confuse the public with short-changed answers. And then on top of all of that, we've seen this affidavit, which is, I think it's like 130 pages of information. We've heard this big range of evidence. We heard that Barry was spotted doing five trash runs, that Suzanne may have been spying on him. And then I'm really interested in this and to hear what you thought about it. There was this suggestion that Barry's mobile phone and the data they collected from the phone towers showed that he was chasing her through the house before she disappeared, which sounds pretty damning. And I think we do hear about being tracked by mobile phones, but can you rely on it down to that kind of detail that he was chasing her through the house? The suspicious stops at trash cans. There were five different locations that Barry allegedly deposited trash in or evidence in. We don't know. Places like a dumpster at a bus terminal, behind a hotel, uh, or, or near a fast food restaurant. What was more interesting was Morphew's explanation that he's cheap and he was trying to find places to dispose of trash from his work sites. Well, for investigators searching for evidence and a body, this behavior became really important as additional information rolls in. But the mobile phone discussion is the thing that really blew the minds of a lot of people, especially those in the courtroom on the day the prosecution presented their theory. You know, that data that showed Barry's phone moving throughout the inside and outside of the house. The defense argued that the information suggested that Barry was moving at speeds of up to 40 miles an hour, that he was running through walls. Well, they were spot on, and in my opinion, the prosecution failed to share the science of mobile phone data. You see, mobile phone reception in rural Colorado is really poor. When the location of a phone is determined, it's done through a process called triangulation. I mean, I'd encourage everybody to just stop for a moment. Take a look at the map on their mobile phone right now while we're talking. If you're in an area where mobile reception is poor, the circle might be larger. Sit patiently and watch the location of your phone as it moves around, making it appear like you're moving, when in reality, your position hasn't changed one iota. But Barry wasn't running through walls, and he certainly wasn't moving at 40 miles an hour inside his home. 
The important thing here is the certainty range, that circle, and the calculations which showed him inside the home. That's significant, especially when you see him take overt actions later in this case by going into airplane mode. I saw her like a squiggle, like a little red squiggle all the way through the house. It looked like, you know, it would have been a mad scramble. Exactly, Tori. And in my opinion, the prosecutor didn't think this one through. I mean, the defense challenged the data, and rightly so. The science of mobile technology and GIS could have made this so much easier to understand. In fact, it gave me an opportunity to educate the community on what we call mobile drift. Right, she was meant to be in the house on her own. And on the internet coverage, yeah, they're in mountain lion territory. So, you know, maybe their coverage wasn't that good, which makes it look a little more scrappy and like it moves around. Yeah, that's right. From the very start of this case on Mother's Day in 2020, there have been complaints about bandwidth in this rural Colorado community. The mountains and the distance between cell phone towers makes obtaining an accurate location really tough. Let's personalize this a little, folks, and and think of the areas in Australia where there's little or no known reception. Imagine trying to get an accurate location based on cell phone triangulation in an area like that. So I feel like this case has just been kind of breaking news after breaking news, and one of the more recent bits of breaking news is that Barry's now been let out on bail for, I think, $500,000 US dollars. One of the things that really struck me watching the footage of him emerging was his teenage daughters, Macy and Mallory, looking so supportive when it seemed as though most of the coverage was fairly damning of him. In all the cases that you've seen, are you surprised when families seem to be so supportive of the person who, you know, in many people's minds, may be a guilty party? No, not at all. In fact, I think back to the many cases I've been involved in. I mean, there is a polarizing effect that occurs in these criminal cases. At times I've watched as those who are intimately involved in a criminal case seem to polarize some toward the victim, others toward the defendant. They might even cut off all relationships with the other side, something like we're seeing in the Morphew case. And think about this. In the Morphew case, the daughters have lost their mother. Now, as the criminal proceedings continue, they risk the loss of their father to jail. I mean, that's an awful lot of trauma for any child to bear. Even if they happen to be as old as the Morphew children, it's an awful lot for them to bear. Now, add the pressure of wondering if your father really did murder your mother. Holy cow. Trusting and having hope would be difficult at best. Imagine trying to process that piece of information. So to answer your question, Tori, I personally hold no ill will against the children in this case for siding with their father, nor do I judge anyone else's decision on where they lay their allegiance in cases like this. Mm, I think that's a really good point. It's really easy to kind of lose sight of all the humans who are caught up in the in the ripple effects of this. So, look, the trial is continuing. And, Mike, I know a lot of people are following your coverage very closely. What can you expect from here? We have to figure out how to remain focused on what's really important. In this case, what's really important is Suzanne Morphew is missing. 
likely as the result of murder. Her affair, the troubles in her marriage, or her financial situation doesn't change the fact that she didn't deserve to be murdered. Suzanne Morphew didn't deserve to die. She didn't deserve to be taken away from her children. She didn't deserve this. And so we have to keep focusing on the crime itself and not all the noise that comes out of these cases. You know, when I look at cases like this, I like to think that there are also lessons that law enforcement can learn. Investigators need to become better at how they manage today's internet sluice. There are ways that they can do this more effectively and they frankly have to evolve. Instead of shutting the door on this, perhaps law enforcement needs to inform the public more proactively of things they need and also provide a way for people to securely provide feedback. I like that because I do think a lot of these internet sleuths, they might not intend to kind of interfere with an investigation, that they're just keen to kind of know more and to help out and they think they're onto things. Are you optimistic then, I guess, if you can harness the group power, the crowdsourced information of those internet sleuths and put it into that structured kind of format? Does that leave you optimistic that they will eventually find a body or something that gives resolution to Suzanne Morphew's family? Boy, that's a tough question to answer, Tori. I mean, Colorado mountains and its backcountry are filled with rugged terrain. There are so many places a body could be hidden or disposed of, it's just unbelievable. So my thoughts go to the predator and the level of organization that that predator might have. In many murders, the actual homicide isn't a planned event. Something goes wrong and people die. Now the killer in those cases is often confused and shaken. In these kinds of cases, a body might be quickly hidden behind a tree or a bush. It might be buried in a shallow grave. Those cases make it possible for someone to possibly stumble across the victim and a recovery can be made. On the other hand, if the predator's organized and callous, They may have planned out where they're going to put the body, making recovery almost impossible. Out of these scenarios, I sense that the latter is the case in the Morphew situation. Suzanne Morphew's body may never be discovered, and that means her family will spend a lifetime wondering what happened. Well, look, I hope for those two girls that they get all the information they need. And that trial is ongoing and I look forward to learning more about it and seeing what you think of all of it, Mike. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast, but definitely not the end of this intriguing mystery. Stay with us, listeners, because we have a quick snippet from Mapping Evil Season 2 just after this episode. But for now, it is thanks to our sponsor, Esri Australia, who provide mapping solutions for tracking and solving crimes and finding the missing. To download a free trial of Esri's software, go to mappingevil.com.au. There's also heaps of bonus stuff there and all those other episodes for you to look at. And Mike, I'm just, I'm so glad we have you to keep us up to date on Suzanne Morphew and what happens with her and, of course, her husband, Barry, what's the best way for people to follow what you're doing next? You know, I feel so privileged to know Suzanne's family as a result of our interactions on this case. They are good people who are driven with hopes of bringing Suzanne home. 
I hope that this message of public CSI or, or crowdsourced intelligence will resonate with our audience and that all of us will provide information when we have it. And for those who would like to learn more, you can follow me at Profiling Evil and Mapping Evil on your favorite podcast platform. Mike, I think you're far too humble for all your experience. I look forward to the next time we catch up. Hey, thanks a lot, Tori. It's always fun to be with you, and I love exploring these criminal cases with you. I look forward to the next opportunity. And we'll be back soon for season two, which you really won't want to miss. Mike has uncovered a new lead in one of Australia's coldest cases, which may finally provide the answer to who done it. This is going to be big, guys. We'll be looking at the coldest of Australian cases. We have brand new information on a case that's been unsolved for more than 50 years. It's not to be missed. My dad killed Betty Shanks, who we all know had been brutally bashed. She'd been choked. Her jaw had been broken. This was this beautiful, low-risk woman who is murdered and left on the side of a road, thrown over a fence and into a yard. It was the first brutal murder of its kind in a neighborly city like Brisbane. We know where the body is, and we have to think about where the people that heard the screams were calling in from. Back in 1952, People who lived in Brisbane tended to leave their doors unlocked at night, their windows unlocked. After the murder of Betty Shanks, people locked their windows, locked their doors. So it ended the age of innocence in Brisbane. I've been examining the Betty Shanks case since 2019, and the most peculiar thing happened. I was contacted by someone willing to share relevant information about this murder. It's my understanding that this is still the longest standing cold case in Queensland. So let's see whether or not we can finally help the police and the surviving family members get some answers. And so I think we have a plan for season two. I am looking forward to taking a closer look at the mystery surrounding the death of Betty Shanks. So Mike, let's catch up soon and do it all again. If you found the content covered in this podcast distressing, support is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you have any information about any unsolved crime, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. This is a Bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepherd, and Mike King. Sound designed by Fig Media with editing support from Gabby Patterson, Circa 3, and Podbooth Studios. Our supervising producer is Kim Douglas and our executive producer is Raquel Jackson. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia.